0: Mati Baruchaba, it's great to welcome you here. You are a dear friend. Uh, we have had you uh, speak to small, to large uh, crowds before. What an honor it is to welcome you. Um, you literally uh, are just off of the plane. Um, we are a community who is reading everything, engaging in every way we can, uh, trying to know the beating heart of Israel. And Um, I want to open by asking, what's a lived reality? Um, This has been a brutal week. This has been a tough week. Uh, What what is the mood in Israel right now?
1: Thank you so much for having me here. It's a bit of a a, a jolt to go from Israel to hear from one reality to another. And um, if I have to sum up a very complicated three months in Israel... I would uh, just give you the following illustration from a 12-hour period of my life about a month into the war. I have two 16-year-old twins who go to a high school in Jerusalem called Pelech, and the principal of the high school, uh, a very impressive educator named Yossi Helschkowitz, was um, called up for a reserve duty, he was very close with with my boys. A high school principal in Israel isn't like a high school principal in in my own recollection of growing up in Toronto. It's much uh, there's much less distance. The principal hangs out with you at recess and is um, involved with you in a, <clears throat> in a in a in a personal way. And my boys were personally attached to to Yossi. So the the principal of the school is called up for a reserve duty on October seventh. Of course, there's a reserve call up, and so many people show up. Uh, to serve, but the army doesn't have enough guns and equipment to give all of the people showing up, 120% uh, in some units, 150% in other units. Yossi went to his reserve unit, even though he was 44, which is past the cutoff for for combat units and reserves. Uh, He um, was in northern Gaza with his unit. They were sweeping homes for tunnel entrances, which is a lot of what the infantry is doing in Gaza. There are, as we now know, hundreds of miles of tunnels underneath the Gaza Strip, and many of them come up in civilian homes. So finding the tunnels involves going into the homes and picking up carpets and breaking the tiles and trying to find the the entrances to the tunnels. Yossi and three of his comrades went into a house in northern Gaza. It was booby-trapped, the house, came down on them and all four of them were killed. So the principal of the school was killed. So we had to go to the funeral. <clears throat> the funeral was at Mount Herzl, the National Military Cemetery, where I assume that many of you have have been. When we arrived there, this was nighttime and it was the third funeral that day at Har Herzl. So there was kind of a conveyor belt of military funerals going on. This was the third one. There were thousands of people in the cemetery because he was... a high school principal so the whole school was there and parents it felt like all of jerusalem was there and it was just a shattering moment it was one of the hardest moments i've ever been party to in israel and i've been in israel for almost 30 years i've been there since i was 17 i served in the military myself i've been through difficult periods of israeli history and i don't know if i've ever been at something as awful as that funeral he had five kids the same age as my kids, and and they spoke at the grave. And um, it was really, it was awful beyond belief. It was just a a moment of just pure grief. This guy had gone off to fight, even though he didn't have to, and and the worst possible uh, thing had happened to him. And um, it was just a dark, a dark moment. I woke up the next morning at 5.30 in the morning and drove down to a kibbutz called Sa'ad, which is a kibbutz on the border with Gaza. And I went down to pick avocados. Uh, One of the things that happened on October 7th was that the agricultural workers who do much of the heavy lifting of agricultural labor in Israel, many of them are Thai. Some of them were murdered by Hamas, others were kidnapped and the rest of them quite understandably ran away. So the crops were rotting in the fields and calls went out on WhatsApp groups because as I'm sure many of you know, Israel is run on WhatsApp groups, that's how the country runs. So the uh, farmers in the South sent out these distress calls, please come and help us pick our crops. So I went down to Saad to pick avocados and I was there with 20 other people. No one knew each other, Uh, no one knew the farmers, total strangers had just heard that these people needed help with the avocados and they showed up at 5.30 in the morning, there's an artillery battery next next to the kibbutz, which was firing all the time. So as we were picking avocados, the ground is, shaking and there's metal whizzing in the air over over our heads. Most of it was ours. Some of it was theirs. Uh, and um, to see the kind of grassroots mobilization that Israeli society is capable of is the other side of the darkness of the post-October 7th period. So we have this just shattering loss, this loss of people, this loss of faith in our government, loss of faith in the army, the loss of our kind of optimistic belief that something like this could never happen again, all of that has been lost and it's a period of deep loss. At the same time, you see what we have, which is this society that is capable of coming together at a time of, um, uh, of catastrophe. And people will do almost anything for each other and for the country and people, um, you know, would leave their jobs in in Tel Aviv, and you could tell by the cars parked in the avocado orchard, orchard, you could tell that it was the middle class. A lot of the cars had stickers of high-tech companies on on the side. In Israel, I don't know if it's the same way in the States, if you run a marathon, you put a sticker on your car that says 42.2. Does that happen here? Or is that just an Israeli guy thing? It means I'm a real man, I ran the marathon. Basically, it means you're from the middle class. That's what it means, and so the the cars are the, the cars of the Israeli middle class who've come to the south to pick um, avocados. In that case, I also picked cabbages, I picked lettuce, I picked uh, uh, oranges, and you see thousands of Israelis coming down to the south on the border with Gaza just to pick the crops. And that 12-hour period between Yossi's funeral And arriving at Kibbutz Sad, I think that sums up, if I can, in such a short comment, it sums up something of the spirit of Israel in this really uh, strange and awful time. Thank you. And you
0: spoke of the trauma of loss and the rallying of Israelis together, solidarity. Um, But you also mentioned betrayal. And I just want to talk about that. And sitting across from you... I'm tempted to ask you about October seventh itself, which, if not tonight, we'll get to over the course of Shabbat. But this, this, this balancing act, and I'm seems to be in the last week. There's the fault lines are getting more um, uh, evident in Israeli society. The combination of betrayal balanced with a solidarity. So where were we on October 7th? And where are we today on these uh, two poles of solidarity and betrayal?
1: That's, that, that's a wonderful question. And one thing that, that we've seen, and I think we've seen it in, in America too, is that people come together at a time of, of crisis and the, the cracks and the dissent that we had on October 6th, it, it all goes underground for a while. And people come to shul, and people forget that they were fighting with people about, you know, <laughs> uh, you know what, how long Musaf should be, and uh, you know the interior decoration of the of the banquet hall, and everyone's friends. And the same is true in Israel. Of course, we had a terrible year leading up to October seventh, which has kind of been forgotten amid the, the events. But we had a year in which it seemed that the country was falling apart. I mean, Israelis were at each other's throats in a way that we've really never seen before. It didn't become violent, but it, at times seemed that it was about to, and it was um, so bad that people were were not just threatening, but had announced that they would stop serving in the military, uh, particularly um, Air Force pilots, which is it kind of boggles the mind now that the Air Force is flying 24-7, but hundreds of Air Force pilots had, had declared that they would no longer show up for service if Netanyahu's far right government continued with its uh, plan to change the country into a different kind of country. And then on October 7th, everything stopped and all the guys who said they weren't coming to, you know, to serve they come to serve and in in a quite an incredible development, the organizations that were running the protests, the organizations that were most aggressively criticizing the government, those are the organizations that basically take over civil society in Israel and run the country for the the first few weeks of the war. Because one thing that happens after October 7th is that the government is shocked into dysfunction. And our prime minister who never stops talking disappears. And we have uh, this, feeling that the state is is gone and into the vacuum come organizations like Achimla Neshek, which it means brothers in arms, one of the most aggressive and fiery protest organizations overnight. Some of those guys go into the army and the rest of them are housing evacuees, feeding evacuees, feeding soldiers. Again, the WhatsApp groups, you started having these WhatsApp messages. I have two families from Sterot. I need a place to put them. Who has an apartment? I need 10 hot meals at Moshav Patish. Who can get them there? Um, The Achim Laneshek guys set up a kind of a command center in a parking garage in Tel Aviv. Uh, Totally grassroots, not top-down at all, not being funded by anyone, just a bunch of Israelis with (laughs) with WhatsApp. They uh, had restaurants across Tel Aviv making meals, bringing them thousands of meals in trays. They were brought to the parking garage where volunteer drivers were picking them up and distributing distributing them all over the country. Uh, That's just one example of how the protesters who were... (laughs) um, trying to topple the government suddenly became the backbone of Israeli society. And this really carries Israel through the first month or two of the war, but now the cracks are are returning. Now you can can feel them. Um, Netanyahu has a very divisive leadership style and he's a personality that really, I think a personality that is not capable of unifying the country, leaving aside questions of left or right. Uh, he's just not someone who can bring together the country in the way that it needs to be brought together. And as a result, the cracks that existed pre-October 7th are they're reasserting themselves in a way that's quite, that's quite scary because we have to fight a war. We're losing two or three guys a day on average. Some days, you know, as you in a very touching way uh, did in the service, we lost 21 guys in one incident 24 guys that day. Um, we, we can't do this if we don't have a leadership that we believe in. And the I, mean, I think it's maybe just one more thing to kind of emphasize what October 7th was for Israelis and in what atmosphere this is all playing out. The If you, if you speak to people who went through October 7th, then the bottom line of what they of what they tell you, of the stories that they tell you about what happened that day, is that for about 24 hours, maybe more, depending on who you talk to, there was no state. The state of Israel ceased to exist for a day or two days, maybe a week or or two weeks. But on October 6th, the idea that it would take the army or police more than 20 minutes or half an hour to get to you anywhere in the country was impossible. I mean, the the slaughter at the kibbutzim on the Gaza border happens about an hour, an hour and a half from Tel Aviv. There's no Nevada in Israel. It's not on the far side of of Texas. It's right in the middle of the country. And the, the kibbutzim are being swarmed by thousands of terrorists no one comes. Some people went into their safe rooms, into the mamad, the reinforced room that Israeli houses have uh, at 6.30 a.m. on Shabbat, October 7th, and, and were rescued at lunchtime on Sunday. So there's this incredible feeling that we've become accustomed to because now we're accustomed to the story of October 7th, but which is unimaginable when it's happening, that there is no state, that the idea that the Jews had gone from powerlessness to strength in 1948, it's gone. It feels like an illusion. And that's the Israel that we're all living in. It's not another round of violence in Gaza. It's not another war of the kind that we've seen. It's an existential moment for Israel and for Israelis who aren't sure that we have a country. We're not sure that the reality that was supposed to have changed in 1948 actually changed. So when we look at all these questions of, you know, internal dissent and the cracks returning, we have to remember that this is the the basic experience of of October 7th, and this is what Israelis are trying to navigate, even though they won't necessarily put it that way explicitly. I wanna
0: come back to the cracks in Israeli society, but uh, there's been a lot written about October 7th itself. You yourself had a a very well-read piece in the Atlantic about the hubris of uh, the startup nation that had been laid low, and that really military tactics that are from yesteryear somehow, uh, you know, brought Israel to its knees. This country that sort of believed itself to be beyond. So, so what? What is uh, the the nature of that failure? of, of, is that a military failure? Is that a government failure? Is that a deeper cultural uh, failure of Israel um, uh, on October 7th itself?
1: So the the analysis of the failures of October 7th will I think, occupy us for for decades. I mean, we're, we're still talking about what went wrong on Yom Kippur in 1973. And actually leading up to October 7th, that was what Israelis were discussing. It was the 50th anniversary of that war. And Israelis are still kind of replaying 1973. How could we have missed that? How did we not understand that the Egyptians and Syrians were about to carry out a surprise attack? And that was 50 years ago. By the way, incredibly, October 7th is 50 years and one day after the Yom Kippur war, and it also happens on a Jewish holiday. And there are a lot of, and it's also on Shabbat, and there's a lot, there, there are many similarities between those two events. And, uh, and, and one of the similarities thats that there is a concept or what Israelis call conceptia, a concept, a military strategic um, ide fix that turns out to be wrong. And, and, there, and there are a few layers of it. The, the, the basic layer I think is that we believe that Hamas was contained. We told ourselves that they were deterred, that they had certain capabilities, but they would not use them because we were deterring them. That was the story. It was an illusion. The story was incorrect, but part of the story was tech. And I wrote, a st- I wrote an article about it for the Atlantic a few weeks ago, trying to get at it. Because if, I mean, you know that Israelis are very proud of being the startup nation, that's really become part of our brand. And if you went down to the Gaza border before October 6th on a tour, probably you'd be shown all the amazing tech that we had down there thousands of cameras along the fence, which meant that you didn't need infantry men, you know, freezing at night with rifles out, out in the, you know, in the middle of nowhere, because you could have a camera that would be manned by, manned, not being the right word, because it was done almost entirely staffed. by women. Yes, yes. women, uh, staffed by, uh, soldiers by Chayalot in these control rooms and we had sensors and we had drones and we had remote controlled machine guns and we had a subterranean barrier that was supposed to prevent Hamas from tunneling into Israel. And we had this absolutely incredible array of tech. Intelligence was so good in Gaza that they could listen to any cell phone call in Gaza. Um, so we, we could read their minds. You know, we had nothing to worry about. So the Hamas guys just communicated with handwritten notes and we had all these cameras they just shot out the cameras with rifles and they came through the fence with wire cutters it was it was an attack from 100 years ago it was basically a medieval attack they just swarmed through the border and butchered everyone who they who they found and we were you know we'd been convinced that that was impossible because we were so smart i mean we invented ways and these guys you know who who the hell are they well it turns out that they in some ways are smarter than we are because one thing that tech does to you is it makes you dumb. Um, the, we have smartphones, but the word smart in smartphone <laughs> doesn't mean that you are smart. The smarter your phone is, the stupider you are. So there was talk in, in Israel in the past couple of years of having an army that would be small and smart instead of a big army with tanks and you know, the old fashioned kind of army, we would have Uh, an army that is small and smart. And the smart in the small and smart army was smart tech smart. It was smart, like smartphone smart, which is the opposite of smart, because the more you rely on tech, the less you're going to be able to function when the tech goes down. And that's exactly what happens. They knocked out the tech on the Gaza border, and it turned out that we had no plan B. Even though when I was a very lowly infantry soldier in in the army in the late nineties, one of the first things I was really at the bottom of the of the infantry food chain, one of the first things I was taught was a rule, like a military truism, that goes like this Kav Hamaga le olami parets. The line of contact will always be broken. That means that any defensive line will be breached. So when you plan for anything, you cannot assume that the defenses will hold. You must assume that the enemy will get through and plan accordingly. And that, of course, is a lesson from the Yom Kippur War when Israel made the same mistake, thinking that the Suez Canal could not be crossed. But the, the line of contact will always be breached. And it just happened to us again because we told ourselves that tech enabled us to outwit history and military logic and now that we had all these algorithms and you know these incredible sensors and cameras that that meant that we could relax and that was one of the the key the key errors of of October 7th with consequences that are really too awful to to contemplate
0: so so which leads us back to where we were a moment ago about um the anger and the betrayal is it because the Uh, Fault lines in Israeli society that preceded October 7th have now reasserted themselves. Is it because there is anger in Israeli society at either a government or an IDF that allowed October 7th to happen? Or is it because there are divisions within Israeli society as to whether to clean um, out Hamas and possibly... The lives of the hostages will be lost, or just cut a deal. And like, where where is um, the dividing line right now in Israeli society?
1: It, that that's a great and complicated question, um, which I think is often misunderstood abroad. There is a lot of political divisiveness in Israel, particularly around the character of Netanyahu and the and the nature of the Israeli government. But that does not mean that Israelis are divided on the war. So. I think some often in the foreign press, uh, criticism of Netanyahu or dissent against Netanyahu is interpreted as, uh, as, a, as dissent against the war. But if you look at polling information, the last one I saw, 88% of Israelis are behind the war. 88% of Israelis don't agree on anything. Uh, that's just, those aren't numbers that we even know what to do with No Israeli leader has ever won 50% of a vote. Uh, not even David Ben-Gurion. So it's just not that kind of country. We don't really do unanimity, but everyone basically is is behind is behind the war because Israelis understand that this is not a threat we can live with. And we made serious mistake in allowing it to grow to monstrous proportions, and now we have to deal with it, and basically the whole country wants to prosecute the war until the until the end. Um, but that doesn't mean that people are satisfied with, with Netanyahu. In fact, if you look at the polls, people are highly dissatisfied, even some of the people who were behind him before October 7th. Um, I mean, not to... I, mean, I think you guessed, you've guessed my own politics, and I've been pretty vocal about them in the year leading up to October 7th, but I think that um, we've We've, we find ourselves in one of the worst moments in the history of the country, maybe maybe the worst or the most fraught in the history of Israel since 1948. And we're there with the worst government in the history of Israel, where we have a government that includes people who are utterly irresponsible, not everyone, but there are figures in the government who are utterly irresponsible, who are extreme beyond what the Israeli political uh, spectrum should except, and we have a prime minister whom many Israelis suspect of being motivated by political considerations that are not the national good. And there was a poll last week that asked Israelis, do you think that Netanyahu is running the war based on his own good or the national good? And I'm not saying this is true or not, but this is a public perception that needs to be taken into account. 53% said his own good and 33% said the national good. Now you cannot run a war if that's what the public thinks. Again, setting aside the question of whether that is true or not. Uh, the the public, which is sending its kids to the army and losing them at a really shocking rate, cannot be asked to keep doing that for a government that we don't that we don't trust. And, um, and that's and, that, and I'm saying that now, before we we might have an even bigger war in the north. So we're looking at the possibility of a war with Hezbollah in Lebanon, which if it happens, and I really hope it doesn't, but it will be, according to people in the army who follow these things, they they talk about it using the term 10X. It will be 10 times the scope of the war with Hamas. So if we're going into something like that, we can't do it with a divisive government. We need some kind of unifying leadership. It can be from the right, uh, but it just needs to be a different different kind of leadership. And and that's really, I think, the fundamental uh, crack in Israeli society right now. the, the nature of the government and particularly the character of, of the prime minister. And I think if that changed, you'd see a very different dynamic and a much, I think, improved dynamic in Israeli society.
0: So, and just to drill down specifically on the hostages, is there a division? We, we had a couple weeks ago, some of the families of the hostages address our community, uh, whether or not they're, they're unanimous within the hostage families themselves. But the question of whether or not this war should be prosecuted to its conclusion with the lives of the hostages at risk, or whether it's time just to say, you know what, guys, we lost on October 7th, we can fight this war another way, another day, but the hostages are on borrowed time right now.
1: That, that question is increasingly being asked. And there was a very interesting interview last week given by Gadi Eisenkot, who's the former chief of staff. He's a member of the war cabinet and he lost his son a month ago in the war and his nephew in the space of a few days. And he's, he's, a, um, he's Benny Gantz's number two. So he's from that centrist party. And one of the things that he he said was that there was a disagreement in the war cabinet on this question. When we had that deal that was releasing small batches of hostages every day, there was a question of whether to continue that or not. Hamas was refusing to do what it was supposed to do, which is release the young women it's holding. And the the, the debate was, do we resume the fighting if they don't release, the women or do we try to just get out whoever we can get um, and Eisencott said we need to get out whoever we can get. And the rest of the war cabinet voted against him and said, no, if they're not giving, if they're not following through on uh, what should happen next. And the reasons for that, I think are clear to us, even if they're, even if we don't wanna think about it, um, then, then we're, we're resuming the war and the war resumes and there've been no other hostages freed. So the, the question is, is there a contradiction between Israel's two war aims? One aim of the war is defeat Hamas or remove it as a military threat. And the other aim of the war is get the hostages back. And the question is, are both of those things possible at at the same time? And here too, there's an interesting kind of hidden political dynamic that comes into play because one of the hidden facts of October 7th is that it's a catastrophe largely of the left. The people who are massacred on October 7th, are largely from the left. The people who live in Kibbutzim along the Gaza border are some of the most left-wing Israelis, and some of them were prominent peace activists. Vivian Silver is a name you might've heard, uh, and, there were, and she, she was murdered by Hamas. Um, and she was Canadian and um, uh, and there are others, and many of those people you know used to take people from Gaza, patients from Gaza to hospitals in in israel and that was the, that was the scene around Gaza. three hundred and fifty young people murdered at the rave. that's not exactly the hardcore settler movement that's that's liberal liberal Israel. so many of the people who are now involved in the movement for the hostages. Are also people who were protesting against the government before October seventh, and and things are getting a bit mixed up in that in that regard, and um, and it's adding to I think the the lack of clarity about what exactly is being protested for or or against. I think if you ask the the average Israeli, they believe that um, that the war against Hamas must be prosecuted to its conclusion and that that ultimately will be the best way to get the hostages released. There is a chance that that's, not, uh, that that's not the case, but I don't think that you're gonna meet many Israelis who say we need to stop the war. They might say we need to pause it for two weeks, three weeks, one month, how, however long is necessary to get these people out. By the way, that seems to have been proposed uh, a couple of days ago. Israel seems to have proposed a two month pause in the fighting in return for a deal that would see the hostages get out that is not in Hamas's interest because the hostages are their their main leverage at this at this point so it's part of the impossible dilemmas that are that our leaders are facing at the moment do you
0: think the Israeli government knows where the hostages are
1: I, I think they know where some of them are and I'm not speaking with um, thank you very much I'm not speaking with internal knowledge of of secret information but just from from what I've read it seems clear that the senior leadership of Hamas is located in close proximity to some or many of the surviving hostages and that is going to make it difficult to to take them out from from the air or or in any way so I think that yes the, the Israelis have a sense of where many of the hostages are located, but that does not mean that we can get them out. And that's part of the you know, incredible helplessness of this situation. This is a, a short drive from our border. We have these people who are being held in tunnels, just you know, a 10 minute drive from, from Israeli bases and we can't, we can't get to them and that's part of the dark feeling in israel which feels you know that we have all this strength and we have these advanced fighter jets and we have these intelligence capabilities and we can't even get our people back you know from this short distance away
0: you spoke of the north in passing i want to talk about that for a second but ask a bigger question when rabbi zuckerman's going uh, next week with a sold out trip um a few of us were Uh, on another trip earlier, I forget which speaker it was, but they were trying to um, give us some good news. And they said, horrible as October 7th was, there were a series of things that didn't happen that could have happened for which they are grateful. That Hezbollah didn't fire from the north, that the West Bank didn't boil over, that the Israeli Arab community has been relatively quiet, that the Gulf states though their silence is deafening, have not taken an aggressive posture, and there might have been a couple other ones. But I was wondering if you could sort of... I mean, I'm, I'm very concerned about uh, the number of um, uh, residents of the West Bank, Palestinian residents, who um, have been killed, uh, that the, the settlers are being armed with, with pistols, and otherwise, violence is up. The north seems to be heating up. I mean, is, is this... This, this 10X scene could not, potentially could be not just 10X in the north, but it could be 10X, right? What happened in Akko and, and Lod a couple years ago. I mean, these, any one of these could be triggered.
1: I thought this was supposed to be an optimistic question. What happened? That took no. such a strange turn in the middle. <laughs> very Jewish turn. I'd like to talk about optimism. Um, This catastrophic situation is about to happen, what are we going to do? It's also funny, I mean funny, in a Jewish way, we were talking at the table before about comparing different, you know, like what's worse, October 7th or the suicide bombings of the second intifada? Uh, You know, who's worse? You know, Pharaoh or or Hitler. It's you know that's the kind of discussions that Jews like to have. This is the hand we've been dealt, unfortunately. Um, I think there are points of points of optimism, and I think it's important to remember them. the 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 relations that we have with the countries in the Gulf have proven remarkably durable, and I don't want to jinx it. But um, but those those ties remain, and part of what's going on there is, of course, that whatever they say publicly, Hamas is an enemy of. Are new friends in the Gulf they are a proxy of the Iranians who are the prime enemy of uh, Sunni countries in the Gulf, like U- like the UAE and like Bahrain and like and like the Saudis, so those countries are clearly quietly hoping that Israel wins. That's what's happening there. And that's one reason that I think that, you know, beyond these questions of how this is being described abroad and how, you know, the international community is reacting and how, you know, the story is being told about the events in Gaza. And, and we're seeing a real civilian catastrophe in Gaza. It's not fake. Uh, the, the responsibility lies with Hamas, which started the war and built the battlefield on which the war is being fought. <laughs> It fought, but the tragedy is real. But beyond or beneath that level of storytelling, there's a story being told about power. And, and that's the story that Israel is really working in. And, and Israel, what Israel has to do before it, ha- it can do anything else. And it has to do this for the Gulf and it has to do it for you. And it has to do it for Biden. And it has to do it for Europe. And it has to do it for, for everyone who's watching. We have to win. We have to win and that's gonna come at high cost and it's gonna mean staying the course even though a lot of people are gonna be screaming at us. But we have to win and prove that we can take care of this threat because a lot of people are watching. Our friends are watching and our, and our enemies are, are watching. Reasons for optimism, those ties have, have held and offer the possibility of a different future in the Middle East, which is, which is there. Again, it has to, um, it, it depends on it might be inflating it to say it depends on an Israeli victory, but I think we're at an inflection point. So an Israeli defeat in this war tilts things toward the Iranian axis, And an Israeli victory in this war might tilt things in a different direction. People wanna be on the winning side. Whatever they say about morality and whatever they say about ethics, they wanna be on the side of the winner. And we have to be the winner. And if we are, I think we'll see a more positive dynamic emerge the israeli arab population has been remarkably um i don't know if loyal is the right word because it sounds like i'm kind of belittling them but um what happened in 2021 when there were riots in mixed cities that has not happened this time and polling information again if you trust polls and i always take them with a grain of salt but they give you a general sense of something israeli arabs say they've drawn closer to israel during this war which is probably because they are more aware than Israelis of the other possibilities. And of course, Muslim citizens of Israel were among those murdered and kidnapped by Hamas. And there are interesting dynamics going on there and reasons, reasons for optimism. I live in Jerusalem, which is always a very volatile place. And Jerusalem feels tense, but it has been remarkably orderly and, and quiet and remains much safer than any American city of similar size. Uh, and of course, the the, um, the the northern border. I have a, a piece coming out on the northern border, which I wrote for the Free Press, and it should be out uh, shortly. The, that is bad, right? We have more than sixty thousand Israelis evacuated from their homes, and the country has effectively been truncated, right? Five kilometers of sovereign Israeli territory has become five kilometers south of the border. So a total of about. of Israel's sovereign territory has been rendered uninhabitable by Hezbollah. It's it's an unprecedented state of affairs. Uh, And there's been this kind of tit for tat violence across the border, which is bad. On the other hand, the full scale war that we were worried was going to erupt has not erupted. And I wanna touch wood, but this isn't wood. Um, If you're near wood, you should touch it because we're all hoping that that it won't materialize, but it could be... It could be worse and the west bank has been largely quiet again that could change in in a heartbeat has it been quiet i mean there's hundreds of palestinians who are dead there that that's true and and there are agents of chaos jewish israeli agents of chaos uh, at work in the west bank trying to heat things up i think in in pursuit of the big bang that uh that some of the far right israelis want to our to our shame and and I think to our greater shame, they have representatives in the Israeli government um, because Netanyahu put them there. And that's part of the political, um, the kind of dark political moment. But the, the, what, what we're seeing in the West Bank is violence. It's not an explosion. When the West Bank explodes, we know, um, and you too will know. And that, ha- that, has, not, that has not happened. And, and, and I hope it doesn't. So that's again, a very Jewish thing to say. We have this utter catastrophe unfolding, but it could be worse. Um, I suppose it could be worse. Okay, um, I'm going to ask one more
0: downer of a question. You recently wrote a piece, and I'm going to leave diaspora, Israel, and American Biden. I'm leaving that tomorrow for Rabbi Zuckerman. So I'm not, but but I want to talk about the recent piece you had in the Free Press about what Hamas understood. Um, that no one else did. And you sort of connected the dots on anti-Semitism from sort of the the crudest form in the Hamas Charter to the news of today with the um, ICJ and sort of the whiplash we're all feeling of um, saying, how did this happen? That uh, this world is so darn inhospitable to the Jewish people and to the right of Jews to self-determination, but that Hamas actually got that. Um, and, and I was wondering, especially in light of the events of today, um, and I think people know what happened at the ICJ, um, uh, uh, where, where you see this tsunami of um, anti-Israel, anti-Jewish sentiment.
1: I was hoping for a bit of a happier question, but some people like anti-Semitism. Sometimes, it, they're, you know, sometimes it's just reassuring that you know, there's so little we can count on in the world, in a world of change, Um, but we'll always have anti-Semitism. So Um, I wrote this piece called The Wisdom of Hamas. I got kind of hammered for that headline, but what I was trying to say was that on October 7th, Hamas understood a lot about the world that we did not understand. And I think it's important to look at that because Hamas attacks Israel, it carries out this absolutely barbaric attack for, Maybe a week or so, the world is behind Israel and everyone is, is shocked and the IDF is about to go into Gaza and everyone's talking about how Hamas miscalculated. What were they thinking? Now they're gonna get it. Um, you know, the Americans come out behind Israel. Europe comes out behind Israel. And three months in, it's not entirely clear, in my opinion, who miscalculated. One thing that I think it's important to understand about Hamas, and, and it's not something you will be able to understand by reading mainstream news coverage, I don't know if it was mentioned in the introduction, but I worked at the AP, which is the world's biggest news organization uh, for about six years between 2006 and 2011, including the years that uh, that Hamas came to power in, in Gaza. Hamas does not see itself as fighting a local war against a country called Israel. Their war is not limited to a country called Israel. In fact, they don't often use the word Israel Hamas, And if you look at the charter and you listen to what they say, they believe themselves to be fighting a war against Jews that is global in scope and historic Um, going back. I mean, if you look at the charter, they talk about Jews being behind the French Revolution and the Russian Revolution and behind the First World War and the Second World War, manipulating global events, not just through money, but through um, Bnei B'rith and the Lions Club. Uh, And that's actually in the Hamas charter. you can read it. So they come from a world- Just as
0: a Jewish communal professional, both of which are fixer uppers, right? Like if they're controlling the
1: world, like, anyway, keep going. I mean that, but the same is true about Jews, right? If you know Jews, you just know, there's just no way we could handle it. Uh, (laughs) um, If you believe yourself to be in a global war against Jews, then you understand that you have a lot of allies and if you grew up in a friendly city like Toronto, which is where I grew up in the 90s or the 80s under what we call the Pax Americana of the late 20th century, you just thought this wasn't real. I thought these were stories told by my grandparents. And here and there you'd hear there'd be a story about a spray painted swastika over here. And there'd be you know the odd shooting here or a bomb threat, or you just hear weird and kind of disconnected data points about antisemitism and, and I, I dismissed it of course. Um, But what you understand if you're in the world of anti-Jewish activity, there are many people on earth, hundreds of millions, maybe billions, who believe themselves to be in conflict with Jews in some way. And it includes, just for example, two thirds of the population of Indonesia, where there are no Jews. Uh, British labor unions, uh, the French left, the French right, Russian nationalists, their enemies uh, among the Ukrainian nationalists, increasingly China, ideologues of the Chinese Communist Party. Um, There are many American examples, people from Ivy League universities um, believe that one of the problems that they face in the world, one of the most urgent problems, is, is Jewish in some way. And this is not a small belief. It's not a small number of people. It, it is probably billions of people. And we didn't wanna see that because that's frightening and awful. And we just preferred not to see it, just as we preferred not to see what was going on on the other side of the Gaza fence. Uh, but Hamas, Hamas saw it and what Hamas understood was that if you attack Jews, you will be applauded by a lot of people. And that explains one of the most mysterious aspects of October 7th, which is why does the worst massacre of Jews since the Holocaust trigger mass protests against Jews, On October 7th, before any Israeli response is underway, In in some cases, while the attacks were still going on, there there are already protests against Israel in places like London. And and that wouldn't seem to make sense, but Hamas understands that it, it does make sense because this is a global war against people who are Hated by a whole lot of people for different reasons. And some would describe themselves as being on the right, and some would describe themselves as being on the left. And some call themselves, you know, nationalists, and some call themselves communists. But a lot of people have a problem with this group of people. So if you go after this group of people, a lot of people are going to clap. And I think they understood that, and that explains a lot of what we've seen. It explains a lot of the press coverage that we've seen. It explains the reaction of the NGO world, which has been infiltrated by the same ideology and I'm speaking from experience. It explains what happened at the ICJ. It explains the response of countries like South Africa. Uh, It explains the response that has shocked many of us since October 7th. But I think one actor that is not surprised is Hamas. It was part of their calculation and I'm not sure that they were wrong.
0: Okay, friends, please join me in thanking Mati Friedman. (laughs) Shabbat shalom, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Park Avenue Synagogue podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more about our community, check out PASYN.org. See you in shul.
1: Hallelujah.